tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. You are hanging by your fingertips on the sheer face of an ice cliff, suspended a thousand feet above instant death, with your strength running out, and with no chance for escape. This is the beginning of Escape's version of C.E. Montague's short story, Action, which was first broadcast in April of 1948. In the last episode of my podcast, which was about the birds, we came to the end of three episodes that were all about infrastructure in Escape's adventures and how that could help us to see the multiple scales of space that were operating in these stories. This is the first of another trilogy of podcasts, and in the next three episodes, I'm going to be concerned with temporal scales of adventure, the way that time works in some of these stories. The 1948 broadcast of Action is a good place to kick off this trilogy because it thematizes one level of narrative time that I'm going to be thinking about. Action tells the story of Christopher Bell, a 52-year-old executive in the Manchester textile industry who awakens one morning to find that a stroke has caused the right side of his body to become numb. It's still there. That same lack of feeling clear down the whole right side of my body. I can move my arm and leg all right. There's no feeling in them. They're numb. It's simply that at 52 years of age, I've had a light stroke. Bell is disgusted to find that he needs help getting on and off the train during his commute to work. Is this what a man slaves his life away for, to end up helpless, dependent on others? Since Bell no longer has close family or professional ambitions, he decides that he'd rather die than endure further physical decline. I've got to face it. This stroke is the first warning. There'll be others, worse ones. And in a short time, I'll be helpless. There must be some way out. Not suicide, but some way. There's got to be some way. His thoughts turn to his passion for mountain climbing, and he wonders if he might achieve something remarkable now that he no longer clings to life. It's all tied up in the fear of death. Hmm. Take that out of a man for one instant. There's no telling what he might be able to do or what limit he might reach. Bell decides to die while pushing himself beyond the limits of his mountain climbing ability. And so he heads to the Swiss Alps and begins to ascend a perilous section of the Chaliot Glacier.
Montague's short story proceeds chronologically, starting with Bell's stroke and ending with his adventure on the glacier. But the producers of Escape chose to begin in the middle of the story. High in the Swiss Alps, well above 12,000 feet, a man clings with desperation to the frozen glass wall of the Chaliot Glacier, hands and feet jammed into shallow steps chopped in iron-hard ice. Once we're hooked with this life-or-death situation, the narrator asks, What strange events have conspired to bring him along the path of his life and leave him hanging now in peril on the brink of eternity? From here, the broadcast alternates between Bell's moment-by-moment struggle to stay alive on the glacier and flashbacks that explain Bell's path to get there. By making these changes in the plot, the escape adaptation highlights an important aspect of adventure narratives. They feature moments of action. For the sociologist Irving Goffman, action is defined by a very special relationship to time. It's when people release themselves to a passing moment, wagering their future on what will transpire in the seconds to come. Action brings chance-taking and resolution into the same heated moment of experience so that the consequences of an act are experienced immediately. In my past three episodes, I've been talking about scales of space in escape episodes on a micro, meso, and macro level. I'm shifting gears now to think about temporal scales in escape, and action, which bends a narrative to the momentary now, will serve as a micro level of time. As the title of Montague's story indicates, action is concerned with, well, action. Hanging nearly upside down on a wall of ice, Bell wages his future on the split-second decisions and tiny bodily adjustments that will determine whether he lives or dies. Six more steps to cut to reach the edge there. All right. Six more steps. These are the kind of moments that listeners expected from an adventure series like Escape. As the announcement at the start of one episode explains... These are the moments when a life hangs on the twist of a chance. In previous episodes of my podcast, we've heard moments like this when Leinengen runs through the swarm of ants. I ran on, my heart pounding as if it would burst, blood roaring in my ears. When the men in the lighthouse in Three Skeleton Key fight off the rats. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung and smashed one in midair. And when Nat struggles against flocks of attacking birds. I seized a blanket and I used it as a weapon, sweeping it right and left. I could hear the thud of bodies, but they kept coming at me. So at the micro level of narrative time, we've got action sequences. The mezzo level corresponds to an episode of Escape. Each episode depicts an adventure, which extends to days, weeks, months, or years. As with action, we can think about adventure as a certain kind of experience of time. The sociologist Georg Simmel defined adventure in opposition to the routines of everyday life. 
Adventures are periods of time that feel disconnected from the life that surrounds them. They are islands of time that have broken away from the continuous flow of life as a whole. The producers of Escape make this kind of contrast between adventure and the everyday in the tagline of the series. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? So we've got three levels of narrative time so far, which we might imagine as a set of concentric circles. Action, nested within adventure, nested within a human life as a whole. Adventure stories often conclude with the pleasing sense that events on these different temporal levels have been brought into alignment. So, for example, an adventure ends with a moment of action that revitalizes the hero's life as a whole. If we want to take an eco-critical perspective on an adventure story, we need to expand this set of nested temporalities to consider a scope beyond the human lifetime. In order to grasp the significance of the changes that we see happening around us in climate, in oceans, in species extinction, we need to be able to think in scales of time that exceed our usual frames of reference. Environmental critics and artists often talk about the challenge of helping us to imagine this very slow apocalypse. One metaphor meant to alert us to the threat of slow, imperceptible hazards is the anecdote of the frog in a pot, made famous in Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. If a frog jumps into a, a pot of boiling water, it jumps right out again because it senses the danger. But the very same frog, if it jumps into a pot of lukewarm water that is slowly brought to a boil, will just sit there and it won't move, it'll just sit there even as the temperature continues to go up and up. Our collective nervous system is like that frog's nervous system. It takes a sudden jolt sometimes before we become aware of a danger. If it seems gradual, even if it really is happening quickly, we're capable of just sitting there and not responding. The long durations of environmental change frustrate our desire to experience time at either the micro level of action with its appealing sense of immediacy or the meso level of adventure with its tantalizing potential to revitalize everyday life. Listening adventurously to episodes of Escape will mean amplifying the longer durations and slower rhythms that are embedded within them. One way to do that is to add concrete details about the settings where these stories take place. Let's start with the episode we've been talking about, Escape's adaptation of C.E. Montague's Action. Remember that Christopher Bell's adventure culminates in an action sequence on the side of the Chaliot Glacier in the Swiss Alps. The wall of ice that Bell climbed probably no longer exists. The Chaliot Glacier has been reduced by about half since 1973, and two-thirds of the ice volume in the Alps has vanished since 1850. It's believed that the Alpine region could lose most of its glaciers by the end of the century. In fact, it's already lost half its glacial ice, and 20% of that since the 1980s. 
So, from a longer temporal perspective, we can appreciate that glaciers might be more than just the background to human adventure. The Chaliot Glacier is an entity with its own life as a whole, and global warming has brought on a crisis in that life that's just as dramatic as the stroke that befalls Christopher Bell. So you might say that there's really two adventures going on here, one in relation to Bell's life as a whole, and another to the glaciers. At this macro level of time, we start to perceive new connections between the life of the glacier and the life of the textile industry executive. By linking the physical decline of Bell and the glacier, we forge a connection between the carbon-intensive industrial revolution and glacial melt, between the history of capitalism and the history of climate. Given the potential for this resonance on the macro level, we might return to what is maybe the most sonically interesting passage in Montague's short story. After his perilous climb, Bell listens to the sounds of the glacier. The air almost cracked with crispness. It was alive with the massed animation of millions of infinitesimal crystallizations. glacier had its own living whisper, the sum of the innumerable tiny creaks and fractures of its jostling molecules of ice. Bell feels as though he's hearing the forces that are fashioning the earth, as if some murmurous joint voice were trying to make its high urgency felt. We're listening to field recordings of a glacier made by the sound artist Chris Watson. As Bell listens to the living whisper of the glacier and appreciates its connection to his own life, the story starts to synchronize the more prominent rhythms of action and adventure with longer, slower durations that go beyond a human frame of reference. This multi-scalar temporal alignment is what I'm going to be calling slow adventure. Slow adventure. In my next few podcasts, we're going to be listening for other living whispers that are straining to make their urgency felt in escape broadcasts like this one. You are standing at the edge of an enchanted grove, lured by a soft, caressing voice inviting you to destruction. You have nearly sold your soul to an ancient goddess from whom you must escape. These words usher us into The Grove of Ashtaroth, which aired in February 1948. The episode is based on a short story written by John Buchan, who's best known as the author of The 39 Steps, which was adapted for film by Alfred Hitchcock and for radio by Orson Welles. The Grove of Ashtaroth focuses on a character named Lawson, an Englishman who works for a South African mining company. While scouting the African countryside for gold, Lawson and his friend, here given the name Buchan after the author, come across a landscape of great beauty. It was late afternoon when we topped a rise 
and saw before us a small plateau of such beauty that we both reined in and sat staring at it, not speaking for some moments. A tiny sparkling stream wandered through the verdant meadow grasses, and at the edge of the plateau tumbled in a crystal waterfall down to the plain below. Graceful clumps of strange trees grew here and there, and bushes blazed in a riot of bloom. I'd seen nothing remotely like it in all the miles we'd come. It stood alone, proud and lovely, an alien island in a sea of tropic jungle. I've never seen trees that slender and fragile. And the bark, it looks like silver velvet. Anyway, those doves seem to like it. They never stop circling over that one particular grove. They're probably nesting there. Lawson finds the place to be strangely familiar, and he abruptly announces... I'm going to build a home here. A home? Out here in the middle of the jungle, miles from... I'll build a road in from Taki. I've got money enough and no one but me to spend it. John, it's here that I build my tabernacle. Buchan returns to his life in London, and the story resumes three years later when Buchan visits the English-style manor house that Lawson has built near the grove. Despite his luxurious surroundings, Buchan finds his old friend to be much changed for the worse. He's now short-tempered and suspicious, and he's lost his athletic physique. At least you seem to be eating all right. You're actually getting a bit plump. Actually, I'm fat. Gross, flabby, and obscenely fat. Isn't that what you really mean? Buchan begins to suspect dark forces behind Lawson's transformation when he notices several strange objects on the mantelpiece. There was an imposing mantelpiece of ebony at one end, and on it was placed an object elegantly fashioned of alabaster in the form of a half moon. It was curiously carved with signs of the zodiac. There was something compelling, almost unearthly about it. Fascinated, I reached out my hand. I should not touch that about you. Huh? Oh, Lawson, I didn't hear you come in. When Buchan talks to the groundskeeper, Jobson, about this odd behavior, he makes cryptic reference to the full moon. Full moon? What does that have to do with it? You'll find it in the Bible. Read the 11th chapter of the second book of Kings. I found a Bible in the library and thumbed it open to the passage he'd mentioned. I read through it once without understanding. And then one sentence seemed to leap out from the page. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth, of course, Ashtaroth, goddess of the ancient East, whose strange rituals held a dark fascination for the children of Israel, over and over luring them away from their fierce prophets to worship at her shrines. The white doves of Ashtaroth, circling the shrine of her silver grove. Why, then the grove at the end of the turf must hide a lost shrine dedicated to her worship. On the night of the full moon, Jobson and Buchan follow Lawson, who, seemingly in a trance, makes his way into the grove. To help set the scene, I'm going to flesh out the escape episode with some field recordings by Francisco Lopez. We crossed the turf quickly and passed into the black and silver shadows of the moonlit grove, working our way carefully toward the center. The only sound at first was the piping of the doves circling high over the lacy branches above our heads. I saw as we approached that the center of the grove had been cleared to form a 
small circular arena was covered with smooth turf. And standing in the middle of it was a cone of rock 30 feet high, a smooth, sharp tower of stone that pointed up toward the tops of the trees. And then I saw Lawson moving around the foot of the cone on a worn path beaten in the turf. The same path he must have followed many other nights before. And as he danced, a strange new sound slipped into my consciousness. An earthly melody that seemed to come from from the tower, from the trees. Or may perhaps have been born within my own mind, tricked by the magic fantasy of moonlight, shadows, and perhaps madness. It brought to me one vivid thought of the warm, soft lips of an unseen goddess, of lips incarnadine, whispering gently and sensuously across the reeds of a penpipe. I, I stirred uneasily, felt the quickening of my pulse. If I try to resist it, Mr. Bucken, there's only a thing of evil cloaked in a false beauty. McJobson heard or felt it too. Then it was more than a trick of my own senses. I lost all knowledge of time. The dance had grown swifter and fiercer. The moonless figure in the clearing moved faster and faster, posturing and gyrating in tempo to the crazy rhythm. My blood was pounding in my throat, my ears ringing. The music surged through my brain in ever-mounting waves of incandescent sound. Now I was beyond reason, possessed by an overpowering frenzy when... The cock crew. Then the grove was deathly still, and at the foot of the tower, Lawson lay unconscious. Buckin decides that it's his duty to save his friend from this bewitchment, and he vows to deal with the grove in the manner described in the second book of Kings. And he break in pieces the images and cut down the grove. Both the altar and the high place he break down and burned the high place and stamped it small to powder and burned the grove. Jobson agrees with the plan and says, I test the word of God. While Lawson is sleeping off his night of ecstatic dancing, the two men gather supplies and enlist the help of workers from a nearby tobacco farm. What follows is a chilling account of destruction. It was just past nine when we entered the grove, carrying axes and a couple of shotguns and driving several teams of oxen. A light breeze had sprung up and it whispered and rustled in the branches of the silver trees. We took care of the doves first, shot them one by one until we'd killed them all, 27, and piled their white bodies at the foot of the pointed rock. Then the men set to work with the axes, chopping through the slender trunks of the trees. Drop to the single tree, get every bush, drag them into pine. Right to our left. All right, come on. I stood by the stone tower, the high place of King Solomon, and watched while the work went on. It isn't hard to hear environmental overtones in The Grove of Ashtaroth. All the biblical references in the story invite us to hear it as a critique of Western religious attitudes towards nature. In a famous essay, Lynn White put much of the blame for the environmental crisis on Christianity, which he called the most anthropocentric religion the world has ever seen. 
The Grove of Asheroth seems to illustrate White's assertion that the concept of the sacred grove is alien to Christianity. For nearly two millennia, he writes, Christian missionaries have been chopping down sacred groves for being idolatrous, for assuming spirit in nature. The destruction of the grove in Buchan's story echoes these Christian attacks. Remember Jobson saying, I tis the word of God. But the desolate tone of the show's ending casts these deeds in a tragic register. As the pile of trees burn and the dynamite is readied around the tower, Buchan begins to hear the strange sound again. I fancied I could hear a voice coming from the tower, from the trees. This voice was soft, warm, and pleading. Listen with your heart. Can the spirit within you not hear and feel? The heart of all sorrow was in that voice, and the soul of all loveliness. Distant, tenuous, with all the bodiless grace of a goddess older than time and desire. believe that I was imagining this soft and lovely voice. I felt a sudden and overpowering adoration for this exquisite creature who whispered in the breath of the wind. I wanted to call out to the men, order them to stop desecration of her home and sanctuary. Then I thought of Lawson, of what he'd become, and I fought back the impulse. How can you judge who knows so little? One who is part of the whole divinity of nature. No. No, I won't. I can't listen to you. Look at me but once with the eyes of your heart. And you'll belong to me forever. No. Please, no. You have killed my dove. Covered their white breasts with blood. Are you not yet satisfied? It's got to be done. It's got to be done. No, please. You could stop now and leave the high place. New trees would grow. Other doves would come and nest in them. But... Place the boxes of dynamite close together, lads. Easy now. No. Even now, it's not too late. I... I walked away slowly. The piles of tree trunks were burning now. The smoke swirled in the wind. And I was very tired. his life and perhaps his reason. And yet I wondered if perhaps in so doing I was not driving from 
its very last refuge on earth. Something that was so rare and lovely. If perhaps I was not destroying a very beautiful thing. A very beautiful thing forever. Stop now. Please, oh, please. All right, Harrison. No. Oh, no. No. dark, tragic tone of this ending makes the story start to feel like an environmental allegory. As listeners, we're made to participate in Buchan's moral struggle and then share in his regret over the destruction of the grove. It's in these final scenes, as Buchan is held transfixed by the voice of the grove, that the episode starts to coalesce as a slow adventure. Slow adventure. The Grove's life as a whole begins to interact with Buchan's life as a whole, and natural forces beyond the human lifetime are given expression at the micro level of interpersonal interaction. Frozen in the act of listening to the uncanny voice of the Grove, Buchan becomes an oddly inactive action hero. You might say that Buchan starts to resemble the frog in the pot of boiling water. The very same frog. Like the frog that assures its own destruction by staying put while temperatures rise. We'll just sit there. Buchan seems unwilling to change course. And it won't move. Even though it'll just sit there. He knows he should, and he knows it's not too late. Even as the temperature continues to go up and up and up and up and up and up. The show enacts a particularly radiogenic kind of eco-criticism, giving voice to the grove and showing that humans aren't the only agents in the world. How can you judge who knows so little? One who is part of the whole divinity of nature. You could stop now and leave the high place. New trees would grow. Other doves would come and nest in them. Even now, it's not too late. So when we think about the Grove of Ashtaroth in terms of multiple levels of narrative time, we can appreciate how it harmonizes durations at the micro level of action and the macro level of the environment. But we might need to do some more work to amplify temporal levels in the story that exist between the micro and the macro. 
the story draws out the resonance between Buchan and the Grove, but there's silence on the level of social or national history. The landscape is given a voice, but not the indigenous people of Southern Africa. Some concrete details about the setting of this story can help to fill this silence. In John Buchan's short story, the stone construction in the grove is compared to the conical tower at Zimbabwe. Also, Buchan writes that the mantelpiece in Lawson's home contains two of the old soapstone birds that they used to find at Zimbabwe. These details situate the story in relation to the colonial history of the nation of Zimbabwe, which was still known as Southern Rhodesia at the time of the escape broadcast. More specifically, the conical tower and soapstone birds connect the grove to the Great Zimbabwe, the ruins of a city located in the southeastern region of the country. The Stone Kingdom, Great Zimbabwe National Monument. This historical site is surrounded by many large rocks. It's a vestige of a kingdom that once flourished in southern Africa between the 9th and 15th centuries. A conical tower stands inside. It's shaped like a granary and believed to have represented the power of the king. The Great Zimbabwe has a long and contested place in colonial history. When a German explorer arrived at the site in 1871, he thought that he had located the biblical land that was the home of the Queen of Sheba, and subsequent European maps of the ruins were labeled that way. This fostered the myth that the site was constructed by an ancient white civilization, and that served the colonial project. Rumors of lost cities of gold were used to encourage British settlers in the 1890s. During the colonial years, white settlers wanted people to believe foreigners built Great Zimbabwe, not the indigenous people. Zimbabweans say the ancient city is part of their history, built by their forefathers. Myths about lost cities and links between the Great Zimbabwe and biblical lands were given a tremendous boost by novels like H. Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines and She. This troubling literary tradition continued into mid-century American popular culture, as indicated by multiple film versions of King Solomon's Mines. Into the strange and wild interior of darkest Africa, Metro-Golden-Mare sent a motion picture company on safari. Here in its original setting, where no white woman had ever been before, was filmed the story of primitive savagery, of incredible danger. Brink of civilization lies a hostile jungle, guarded by cannibals, cursed by the gods. Inside, a forbidden treasure waits for one man tough enough to take it. Order me! I've got it! Richard Chamberlain is Alan Quartermain in King Solomon's Mines, rated PG-13. The Grove of Ashtaroth is one of several episodes of Escape that traffic in this kind of imperial gothic. So concrete details about setting situate the Grove of Ashtaroth within a tradition of colonial myth-making. Recognizing the colonial overtones of the lost city trope alerts us to the dangers of jumping from a micro to a macro level 
while ignoring all the social and political histories in between. In this case, listening adventurously means making eco-criticism and post-colonial critique work in tandem. I wonder if there's a way to preserve the eco-critical elements of The Grove of Ashtaroth while countering its evasion of social history. If we listen to it adventurously, is there a way to hear other voices echoing in the grove? One scholar has argued that the female voice that Buchan hears in the grove might belong to a spirit medium who played a significant role in the struggle against colonial rule in southern Rhodesia. Charwe Huata was a medium of the female spirit Nihanda, and during the War of 1896, when Shona forces resisted the British, Charwe was arrested for treason and executed. But Charwe was not forgotten and went on to become the matron saint of Zimbabwe's nationalist movement. <laughs> listening to a song about Nihanda from the era of the anti-colonial liberationist wars of the 1960s and 70s. Some of the lyrics translate as, Nihanda died truly wondering, how shall we take back this land? The one word she told us was, seize the gun and liberate yourselves. Charway's story gives us a new way to listen to the Grove of Ashtaroth. The blast of dynamite at the end of the broadcast takes on new meaning when we know that during the 1896 insurrection, settler forces threw dynamite into caves used by spirit mediums like Charway to destroy local sites of memory and tradition. If we hear the voice in the grove as belonging to Charwe as much as to a biblical goddess, then it can speak not only for the wind and trees and birds, but for the local people and their anti-colonial struggle as well. Hearing all the different echoes in the grove requires a kind of polyphonic listening that can appreciate multiple and overlapping historical rhythms. The environmental crisis demands that we develop our skills at this kind of polyphonic listening. Even now, it's not too late. In the next two episodes of ESC, we'll listen to more of Escape's adventures with an ear to multiple levels of time so that they can speak to an Anthropocene epoch when human actions have geological implications. We'll visit roaring forests and sunken cities, places that, like the Whispering Grove in this episode, can either host a chorus of voices or a terrifying silence. Silence.
nothing but silence. ESC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich.edu/p/esc. Thanks for listening.